my fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Today's episode is brought to you by Gordon Law Group. If you've tried to do Bitcoin taxes yourself, you know how complicated it is. You can spend hours and hours going through your transactions and researching tax forms and you're still not sure if it's right or if the IRS will come after you. Or maybe you're so intimidated by Bitcoin taxes that you don't even know where to start. Gordon Law Group can help. Ditch the spreadsheets and feel confident with a bulletproof Bitcoin tax return. They can help with IRS payment plans and they also provide a full range of legal and accounting services for Bitcoin and digital asset startups. Get your taxes done right the first time with the original Bitcoin and digital asset tax pros. Go to gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. As a bonus, they'll send you the ultimate Bitcoin tax guide for free. That's gordonlawltd.com forward slash BTC. How's it going, David? How's it going, Brian, Nick, Grant? How are you? It's going well. Guys, doing great. Thanks for having me. Likewise, good to be here. I will start with talking about Bitcoin 2023. We are 44 days out. It'll be May 18th through the 20th. Really, really looking forward to putting on this event. It's truly an honor that we put it on each and every year. Looking forward to obviously seeing you, David, and Grant, and a lot of the Bitcoin Policy Institute fellows. You guys are obviously a nonprofit, a 501 C3. So you guys work on donations. But another way to support the Bitcoin Policy Institute is get a ticket. Come to the conference and use the code Bitcoin Policy, all one word, when you check out at the store for getting your tickets down to Bitcoin 2023 in Miami, May 18th through the 20th. Part of the proceeds of that ticket sale using that code will go towards funding the Bitcoin Policy Institute. Obviously, here at Bitcoin Magazine, we love what you guys do. 
you bring a lot of you bring a lot of perspective to the space, especially to politicians and regulators who may not have a full understanding of Bitcoin or the, even the differences of Bitcoin and crypto. So we really appreciate heartfelt from me, myself, and Bitcoin Magazine for all the work that you guys do at in for the space. So I'll kick it over to you, David. Yeah, appreciate that. And let's try to get Thomas Hogan, who's in the audience on stage as well. Okay. So yeah, Chris, thank you again, everybody go buy tickets to a B23, you know, just to kick this off and I'll, I'll throw something, I'll pin a tweet here. Um, if you are planning to go to the Bitcoin conference and haven't bought your ticket yet, and you also like the work that we're doing at the Bitcoin Policy Institute, there's a really convenient way for you to, you know, support our work while also going down to Miami. So we have a code, discount code that you can use, BPI10. Again, I'll, I'll pin this tweet at the top, you know, to give you a discount. A small portion of that will go to our organization. Great way to support us if you're already going down to Miami. You know, no skin off anybody's back. So thank you again. It's Bitcoin Magazine. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, let's kick this off. So in case you haven't, you know, heard the news, BPI is hosting a policy conference a few weeks before Bitcoin Miami in DC. It's called the Bitcoin Policy Summit. It's on April 26th. And this is going to be a one-day conference focusing on the policy implications of Bitcoin. Notice that, you know, it didn't say Web3, didn't say blockchain, didn't say, you know, it's a crypto conference. You know, I just put a tweet out about this, but to my knowledge, this is going to be the, the first time, you know, in DC that we've had a couple hundred people gathered in the same room to talk about Bitcoin and Bitcoin only. I'm really excited about this event. You know, I'm, I'm really, really excited. Everybody on this panel is going to be speaking at or involved in the event in some way, shape or form. We're going to be going over the intersection of Bitcoin and national security, Bitcoin and its human rights potential, Bitcoin and the environmental debate, right? Every issue that Bitcoin Policy Institute has touched, you know, will be, uh, you know, mentioned at this conference and discussed at this conference. We'll be talking about central bank digital currencies. We'll be digging into the legislative and regulatory environments. Uh, we'll talk about Bitcoin's financial inclusion potential in the U.S. and beyond. So if you're interested in policy, you know, this is an invite-only event, but, you know, please, if you're, if you're a pleb and you want to come, check out the website, request an invitation, and, uh, you know, we'd, we'd love to have you down there. That said, the majority of this event uh, and the majority of people involved in this event are actually going to be, I'll classify them as, you know, Bitcoin skeptics, maybe Bitcoin curious, right? The, the vast majority of people at this event are not going to be Bitcoiners. It's going to be different than most other coin conferences or crypto conferences that people go to, right? We're not trying to preach to the choir. We're, we're not trying to talk to the echo chamber. This is actually an opportunity to do real education to people who are, you know, making real policy impacts at a, at a federal level. So I want to toss it over to David to talk a little bit more about the event. And then, you know, through this panel, we're going to talk about why this event matters, why doing it this way is important and essentially playing the DC game. What, what does that look like? You know, what do we need in order to actually make national change? Cause I know a lot of you are pretty skeptical. I know a lot of you might not think that we can actually change the, the hearts and minds of uh, folks in the Capitol. Fair enough. You know, I hope by the end of the space that we convince you that, uh, you know, there is value to engaging in this way. So David, I want to throw it to you. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody, especially Brian, Nick and Thomas for, for joining us for this. Yeah, at a high level, what we wanted to do with this summit is pick apart a, a subsection of, you know, digital asset policy, which has become something of an issue du jour in Washington over the past, you know, year or year and a half. You know, there's obviously, you know, no such thing as Bitcoin policy per se. And as much as people in the Bitcoin community like to focus conversations on Bitcoin, from a lawmaking perspective, 
you know, we're always talking about, you know, digital asset policies, the extant legislation, regulatory questions, all incorporate, you know, digital assets together. And right off the bat there, you know, we see a real opportunity for lines to get muddled and misunderstandings to abound, principally because when we talk about digital assets, we're casting a really wide net. You know, since the advent of Bitcoin in 2009, depending on how you calculate it, uh, there have been anywhere from 13,000 to 16,000 cryptocurrencies, the overwhelming majority of which have lost, you know, 99% or, or more of their value. And so, yeah, when we talk about digital assets, you know, we may be talking about Bitcoin or Ethereum, but within that subset, we're also talking about thousands of blatant pump and dump Ponzi schemes and scams. We're also talking about decentralized finance protocols, and we're also talking about you know, things like stable coins. And so one of the goals that we have at BPI is to explain what makes Bitcoin sort of fundamentally distinct from, from digital assets broadly. You know, we, we believe at BPI that Bitcoin has in particular a set of, of qualities that give it unique, they sort of warrant unique consideration when crafting digital asset policy. And with Bitcoin at the scale that it is now, its impacts are, are starting to grow proportionally, wherein coin is key part of broader conversations about financial inclusion in the United States, about disrupting the sort of current Visa MasterCard duopoly, you know, our geostrategic competition with our adversaries, our national security. And so we're taking this conference as an opportunity to fold Bitcoin into some of these broader political issues that the country is facing and help policymakers, regulators, and, and other sort of policy folks in D.C. start to think through some of the benefits and risks that Bitcoin brings to the United States. You know, ultimately, our hope is that people come away from this summit hearing different stories than they have you know, previously heard about Bitcoin, especially in Washington. And, you know, I'd be curious to hear, you know, Nick and, and Thomas's, you know, reaction or thoughts to this. But so much of the conversation around Bitcoin is dominated by a set of stories that don't paint Bitcoin in the best light. Conversations about Bitcoin's risk to national security, to the environment, to consumers abound. And the belief that the technology really only functions to aid malign groups, criminals, and, and speculators is, is a really common narrative. But as many of you on this spaces are, are well aware, there are another set of stories about Bitcoin that we feel go you know, woefully untold in DC, right? The stories of Bitcoin empowering people to make, you know, life-changing savings in cross-border payments or remittances. These stories of activist groups in totalitarian regimes falling on Bitcoin when the legacy financial system was politicized and, and taken from them. Stories about Bitcoin playing a vital role in the early days of Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine 
uh, and the stories of Bitcoin being an uh, admittedly unlikely player, but a promising player in America's sort of energy journey. And so, yeah, I guess I wanted to start by kind of talking about that. Like, why are we doing a conference solely on Bitcoin? And what are some of the things that we're going to be talking about? But I think at this point, it would be appropriate to do some some brief introductions. You know, joining us on stage, we've got Brian Morgenstern, Brian Morgenstern, who's the head of public policy at Riot, who formerly worked in the White House and at the U.S. Treasury. We've got Nicholas Anthony, who is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He and his team have been putting out, if you're not aware, excellent research on digital asset policy. And like us at BPI, have really honed in on central bank digital currencies as a real threat, not just on a practical level, but on a political economy level. I think it, it seems from their recent work that they share many of our concerns about the potential for central bank digital currencies to fundamentally disintermediate core civil liberties and rights that Americans enjoy. And then finally, we've got Thomas Hogan, who is a senior researcher at the American Institute for Economic Research, has been studying and paying attention to Bitcoin since the early days with some colleagues at George Mason University and Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe Thomas was also the uh, a chief economist for the Senate Banking Committee. And then finally, we've got Natalie Brunel, who many of you may know from her regular appearances on legacy media outlets. She's the host of the Coin Stories podcast and an outstanding media personality who's going to be serving as one of our MCs for the upcoming summit. So with that, I will turn it to, I guess, Grant to tee up our first sort of set of questions for the guests that we've got. Yeah, thanks so much, David. Amazing intro. Look, we're, we're 15 minutes in. We'll just jump into it. Natalie, I believe you have a time constraint. So I want to start with you, and then I'd like to, you know, move to the rest of the speakers. But Natalie, would you be able to speak to, like, why stories are important? You know, even when we're talking about, you know, D.C. and we're, we're talking about policy, you know, you're podcast is called coin stories so like why did you take that approach with uh, with your work why are you interested in this policy summit what do you think is like the power of narrative and stories even when it comes to you know policy change and then i'd like to kind of throw that question broadly to the group after that because you both you know have seen various aspects of the policy apparatus thank you so much good afternoon everybody I'm, I'm really grateful to be a part of this event and thank you so much for holding this spaces thank you so much to to the folks who made time for this. You're right. I mean, stories have always really impacted me ever since I was young. And one thing that I am very committed to is the idea that Bitcoin is apolitical and that at the end of the day, we are much more alike than I think the media, which I worked in for so long, makes us feel or portrays us. Everything seems to be in these buckets these days of left versus right, us versus them. But one thing that I'm grateful for from my experience as a journalist and being able to interview people from all walks of life and, and sort of looking at some of these issues on a very micro level from my local broadcast all the way up to national, you know, we, a lot of people are facing really the same issues. They want to take care of their families. They want to be able to invest in their future. They're trying to figure out a way to preserve the value of, of the money in, in whatever industry they 
they they work and 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 earn and and it's getting harder and harder. And I think that Bitcoin is something really amazing because it brings us together. And so if we can humanize some of these experiences, wherever you come from, whatever background, whatever age, whatever state, city, you know, there are so many amazing anecdotes of people who are persevering and doing their best against obstacles in whatever community they're in to provide for their families, to, you know, start businesses, to connect. And those stories I really want to uplift because these are the virtues that Bitcoin really stands for. This idea that if we have this unit of account that can't be manipulated and can't be inflated at the base layer of our economy, it really can bring out the best of humanity and allow us to economically in a way that is maybe more equitable over the long run than a system that continually feels like you're you're treading against water and 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 pools the money with a small group of people, pools the power and money, and it feels like, you know, you're always chasing something that feels further away, and the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. So, you know, stories are the way that we learn that and we connect with one another. And so, I'm really excited to to go to Washington D.C. to connect with people who are educating our policymakers, to meet the people that are on the staffs of these offices who, you know, they have a ton of different issues coming at them, and this is a very very difficult topic to. To, to learn about because there's so much nuance and, and, and education that you really have to take the time to study. And I'm just really grateful to be a part of it. But at the end of the day, stories and emotion are what drives us and connect us. And so there are a lot of amazing stories that I've been able to tell in Bitcoin and so many more that haven't been told that need to have those voices uplifted so that the people in Washington really see how this benefits everybody at large, how it's not political, and how this is a technology that we should really embrace that represents the core values of America when it comes to individualism, freedom, opportunity, meritocracy. And, and that's why I'm, I'm so passionate about Bitcoin in general. So Brian, Nick, Thomas, right? It, between you three, we have, you know, you've experienced the think tank side of DC. You've experienced the Senate legislative side. You've experienced, you know, the White House side of like policymaking, you know, taking everything that Natalie just said about the power of stories, right? Like what, what, role do narratives play in the creation of policy? And maybe how do you like intertwine those with, you know, the need for kind of hard data and facts? Like what, what's that happy medium? And how do you see this event potentially playing a role in, in, in finding that equilibrium? Yeah, this is Thomas. I can speak to that a second if it's okay. Go for it. Yeah. So, 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 you know, Thanks, David and Grant, for having us on and great comments by Natalie. So as David mentioned, I was the chief economist for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee back in 2015 and 2016. And that's a committee of roughly 20 senators that the, the staff, you know, we were advisors to the senators on different issues related to banking and finance. And so the narrative has changed a lot since that time, I would say. So 2015, 2016, you know, the top thing that people knew about Bitcoin was that they believed that it was for crime and, you know, illegal activities. And I think we have done a good job of combating that in just by just through the data, you know, just showing that this is actually not a major use of that and that that's not a danger that people thought of, thought it was. And so, you know, the just just showing the facts, I think, has been very helpful there. Another thing that people were talking about that time was blockchain, not not Bitcoin or not crypto emphasizing that. But I think 
because of like Natalie said about telling the stories about how valuable this has been for people as a currency, demonstrating the use cases and showing the great things that the advantages that this technology has is has been a really important change. And especially as David mentioned, the things that are specific to Bitcoin. You know, I think there has been a good job done of making Bitcoin distinct from other cryptos and showing you know, why it is widely used, why it's maybe more reliable and not a scam like a lot of other ones are. And the potential that it's going to have for people, I think, has been really valuable. And so continuing to, to build on that narrative, I think, is important. Continuing to show concrete use cases and then talking with policymakers about specific policies that they can change, I think is going to be beneficial to us going forward. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winter in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine. Yeah, I would. This is Brian. Thanks, guys, for having us. I I think stagecraft when you're when you're trying to to achieve favorable policy results, sort of stagecraft and and storytelling are critically important. And I go back to when I had a role in advocating for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, and some of the best events we had were with blue collar workers at sites where we were going to be enhancing you know the manufacturing industry in the United States with these policies similarly now the company where I work right platforms we are revitalizing a rural area of Texas where an old aluminum smelting plant closed down that was hundreds of jobs disappeared that was devastating for a community of about 5000 people now we have a Bitcoin mining operation in place, a large data center where we're employing hundreds of people who wear hard hats, invests, and go to work every day and have good paying jobs. And we participate in the community where you know we contribute to the local chamber of commerce and the youth sports leagues. And it's a really tight knit area. And now 
Riot Platforms is playing a really important role in the revitalization of that area. So yes, it's about Bitcoin, but it's about our impact on that community and how it is making people's lives better. So, and, and I think that is really the most power, some of the most powerful messages you can give to policymakers by saying, look, these are your constituents and we love working here and our community is better off for it. So in terms of the policy successes I've had in my career, I think the storytelling and stagecraft has been, that's been some of the most powerful influences that, that, I've, that I've experienced. The one thing I'll just add to that briefly is that I really couldn't agree more in how important the, the storytelling is because it brings it out of the, the, the realm of science fiction I, it's it's hard for a lot of us to realize that some of the stuff that's being worked on in this space to most of the country, most of the world is is a really foreign idea. It's a really alien idea. I mean, I'm amazed almost every day in something that's being created. And when we think about policymakers and how they are going about it, if they think that this is something that one person in the the corner of the world is using only for illegal purposes, it's hard for them to get behind it. It's hard for them to see any good in it. But when you bring forth stories that have real people that live on their block or live next door that are using Bitcoin or using the technology that has come out of Satoshi's innovation, they start to realize that, wait, this, this is a real thing. This isn't a science fiction idea out of a comic book. This isn't some force of evil. This is actually a real thing that I should think about and I should start asking real questions about. Why is it that my neighbor finds this interesting? Why is it that my, my friends and my business partners are, are looking at this? And what else is going on here? I think those fundamental stories and breaking down like the basic economics behind Bitcoin are some of the most important things for policymakers to understand that this is something that's here to stay. And it's something that they should not be chasing away. Yeah, Nick, great, great comments there. And, and I've got a follow up question for you specifically. I, I think one of the things that makes narratives and stories so powerful is, is oftentimes their simplicity. And I think this is an issue that Bitcoin advocates have faced for years where the critiques of Bitcoin are, are very simple narratives, right? Bitcoin uses a lot of energy, therefore it's bad for the environment. It's a very easy to understand, quick, clean argument. A, a similar argument is that Bitcoin competes with the dollar, that you know any sort of money or monetary instrument that is not controlled by a government is sort of with competition. And, and I think that leads to the view by many that that competition is, is zero sum, that for every you know, dollar the price of coin rises, there is a corresponding detriment to the US dollar. And to someone who hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about these issues, I, I think like the, you know, the energy concerns, this too is a powerful narrative that a, a market-driven, decentralized monetary network inherently 
competes with the dollar and the U.S. financial system in a, in a zero-sum way. And a while back, Nick, you wrote a really great sort of short policy paper for Cato. If I remember correctly, the, the title was you know, a, a primer on, on, on digital asset competition or something to that effect. But you, you unpack this argument from, from F.A. Hayek talking about the value of, of monetary competition. And you advance an argument that turns that, that fear that I mentioned sort of on its head, arguing that the emergence of technologies like Bitcoin augment the strength of the dollar rather than detract from it. I think this is going to be one of the core focuses of the conversations at our summit because of the pervasiveness of this fear. So I want to I want to give you a chance, Nick, to to engage with that so common argument that that Bitcoin competes with the dollar and, and maybe share some of the conclusions that you've come to on that question. Absolutely. It's it's definitely a common fear that I see and really across the board, you nailed it, that a lot of the concerns have success in their simplicity and currency competition granted extends beyond coin because that includes anything that we might use it as money should be on a, a stable playing field that people can, can choose from and be free to choose from. And that's something that, as you said, Hayek brought up when he said one of the key purposes of currency competition is to impose upon the existing monetary and financial agencies a much needed discipline. And sadly, for most folks, at least most folks probably in this room, they have not lived to see a, a truly free system as far as currency competition goes. So it's really hard to fathom what it might look like to have alternatives on the table. But it's not this zero-sum game, like you said. One of the, the best lessons that we get from it is that if we can have a free system where people are not encumbered by laws like, like things like legal tender and the like, people can freely choose what currency they want to use. And at first glance, that might look like people are running, but that's not how competition works. People might leave to go to what they prefer, but that doesn't mean you need to stand still. That's a great insight as far as what policymakers can do to craft a stronger dollar. There's so many governments right now that are looking at central bank digital currencies as the be-all end-all for establishing their seat at the world stage. And I think that is just such a fundamental mistake. It's, it's just unbelievably sad to see that. Because what we're actually learning from people moving into cryptocurrencies as far as they're used as money or as a niche money is that people want stronger financial privacy protections, faster payments, better transparency in monetary policy governance. And these are all things that could be implemented in the current system and make a stronger, better system for everyone. And... That's just something that all it takes is a little further push into the realm to understand. However, like you said at, at the very start, it's unfortunate because a lot of people have trouble going into those extended consequences. I mean, that's what 
Henry Hazlitt said was the art of economics is looking at extended consequences as they apply to all groups, not just the initial group. And that's a big part of what I do at Cato is trying to show people that there are these other lessons we can take. There are these benefits that are just over the horizon that if you push a little bit further, you could see is a much better and much freer economy. And I think it's something that policymakers have slowly been recognizing. It's, it's definitely taken a lot of work, but as time pushes forward, more and more are starting to see that really this, the, the experiment with, with the Fed is um, we're only a, a hundred years and change in. It's not necessarily the, the final solution. We can have another, another way to do things and we should look into alternatives to figure out what those ways are. Yeah, Nick, I think that's that's really insightful. And, and Thomas, I, I have a sort of follow-up question for you, which is that, you know, these conversations about the, the benefits of currency competition or, or monetary competition, this idea that, that Nick referenced from Hayek that, you know, it, it might not be such a bad thing if the U.S. dollar is... Uh, sort of reined in by by competition and by market forces. There is, I also think, a, a palpable growing, maybe not material, but certainly like mimetic tone shift around some of these conversations, in, 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 in particular this notion of, of de-dollarization and the belief among many policymakers that the United States is status of its dollar as the global reserve currency is of, of, of paramount importance. Obviously, that view is being questioned more and more, but I think recent events in the financial sector have left many thinking about these, these ideas of, of de-dollarization. And I think that's, for many in Washington, a, a grave risk. So I'm curious to hear your perspective on, you know, threading that needle between, you know, this idea of Bitcoin being a, a benefit to the U.S. dollar, while the principal fear on many people's minds is, is perhaps just that. It is, it is competition to the dollar that, that for many warrants action to, to limit or, or to prevent, you know, outright. So I'm, I'm curious, based on, you know, your conversations, based on your time, you know, in the Senate, to hear your perspective about the, the interplay of these ideas, the, the fear of monetary competition, or, or rather, you know, advocating for monetary competition in a mimetic landscape where, where fear of that, of that competition is, is top of mind. Yeah, I think that's right. And the in terms of the competition among currencies, I think it's a little bit of a misdirection when people say, well, if someone uses Bitcoin or some crypto instead of the US dollar, that that's bad because obviously they're using it for a reason that they believe they're going to get some kind of benefit out of using that alternative instead of the dollar. And when we say it's bad, you know, bad for whom? Maybe it is bad for the central banker or somebody if they're trying to you know, control you or control the economy, but it's not bad for consumers and it's not bad for whoever's using that. And so the idea that it's going to, that competition is going to discipline the central bank, I think is, is right, that it's competition means the 
central bank would be forced into having a more stable currency and trying to provide benefits rather than trying to you know, control people. And so I think we should consider that to be a sort of benefit for everyone that, that is a user of cryptocurrencies or of the dollar. In terms of the dollar dominance, it, it is something that's talked about. I mean, economists don't worry about that as much as politicians. You know, politicians are a little bit more worried about the influence that they can exert through the US dollar in this in the same way that, you know, competition is good for individuals. I think on a worldwide level, that's probably true as well. In fact, you know, the US dollar, even though it's widely used in international international exchange in a lot of ways is not as good as some other currencies. So for example, the Swiss franc has an, is extremely stable and very widely used. I think it's something like the, you know, Switzerland is like the 30th largest economy, but their currency is the sixth most widely used. And so very disproportionate influence. So if you can give users some advantage to using another currency, you know, maybe they're going to do it maybe on a very, very large scale as well. And so I, I see that as a, a, a big opportunity that I, it will continue to be the case probably that some politicians will lament the you know loss of power of the dollar, but things like stable coins also might you know make the dollar more prominent in other other ways. And so I think it's not obvious what the political outcome will be, but certainly from a user perspective for consumers and people that want to use electronic currency, you know that's a that's a big advantage, and if it if it helps discipline the central bank and stabilize the U.S. dollar, then that's you know good for everyone else as well. Hey, so I've, I've got a follow up really quick, Natalie. I know you had a time constraint. Do you have to run? I have a little bit more time, and I think this is a really really interesting topic. So so go ahead and ask your questions. Awesome. I can uh, I can throw it to you first, but. Kind of, you know, one of the things that's that's top of mind for me in this conversation is we're sitting here, like competition, competition of currency, you know, what what's best for consumers, right? I think a lot of people here in this conversation are going to have the assumption, and this is, you know, in many ways the assumption of a lot of folks in in DC increasingly that look, these are these are fiscally conservative ideas, or even you know potentially libertarian ideas, what, what's your response to that, right? Like, like, are these compatible with, you know, potentially ideas from folks on center left or even further left political leanings in the U.S., right? The common criticism we've gotten from this conference and from BPI in general is, oh, some people will just never get it. Some people will just never understand why Bitcoin is good, right? Because there are these fundamental principles that you have to believe in in order to believe that, that that's good. Personally, I would push back on that for a number of reasons, but I'm more interested in, in what you all have to say on this. And Natalie, you know, you mentioned at the top that you think that this is apolitical, that you've met people from all sides who see the value in this. So I'm curious, kind of this meta conversation of how do these concepts of competition and liberty and freedom, financial privacy, right? These things that have kind of been, you know, potentially co-opted by one side of the political spectrum in this country, how do you view these as universal tenets that everybody can actually rally around? And, you know, is this conference potentially a, a, a vehicle to begin moving in that direction? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is why I oftentimes go back to the fact that Bitcoin is this revolutionary technology network. And when we start to get into those narratives and conversations that feel sort of threatening maybe to policymakers where it's, you know, it's a, is it a currency? Is it against the dollar? And we, we start to operate within this framework where it can't coexist when in fact it can make it stronger because of this technology revolution that's happened. I mean, when you zoom out, 
you know, the next frontier, we, we live in a digitized world. It is, it is a cyber world where all of these new, new things like AI are starting to penetrate more and more industries and our interactions online. And, you know, I really want to credit Michael Saylor because he's starting to have more of these conversations. But the U.S. really needs a technology network that is defensible, one that Russians, Chinese, no other nation that is antagonistic toward us cannot hack. And Bitcoin really is built for war. It's built for cyber war. And criminals that want to undermine Western democracy, they can't fight cryptography and, and the bullet programming of Bitcoin. So we need to find a way where we can securely transact business and communication and cryptographically verify what is real in a world of AIs, and Bitcoin can be used to do that. And you know, the US dollar is really based on that security and leadership. And so I think we need to advance to crypto cryptographic security so that our companies, the Apples, the Googles, the things that you know we associate with American greatness in terms of entrepreneurship, so that we own cyberspace. And so, you know, the dollar is going to be strong so long as our economy is strong. And there is no vulnerability to the Bitcoin network the way that there is with all these other blockchains and with centralized technologies. And I think we need to start to educate people on how powerful this is, because when AIs do proliferate throughout, you know, our our digital ecosystem, how can you verify if this video is real or if the message is real? You know, you can cryptographically sign and seal something and know and use Bitcoin and the Lightning Network as this secure transactions protocol. And that's something really powerful that the U.S. should embrace. It could make us so much stronger. And so there's no there's no narrative in there of left or right or libertarian or anarchist. It's just harnessing technology to to maintain security and power. And, and so I think that, that we need to start to shift some of those narratives, especially in Washington, D.C., to that, because, you know, Bitcoin is, it, it, it's really worth pausing for a moment that in 14 years, this has never been hacked. And it's, there's, there's no software that is more attacked because there's so much value to be had. I mean, it's under constant siege and it has withstood every attack. It doesn't have four-star generals behind it. It has no weapons. It sustains all of these attacks because of how powerful it's programmed. And so what other network do we have that exists that is that? So, you know, I think we really need to embrace Bitcoin and, and have those conversations about how important cryptography on the Bitcoin blockchain is to our transactions and our communications and our business in the future. Thanks so much, Natalie. And I want to stop here for a second and just kind of give a roadmap for the remainder of this spaces. We've now been joined by Alex Gladstein, who many of you know, the chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation. And so what I want to do is, is bring it back to policy for a second, toss a question to Brian, Nick, and Thomas, and then talk with Alex to kind of round us out about another one of the, the stories that so often goes untold in Washington about Bitcoin. With this idea of, of currency competition that we were just discussing, I think one of the views that we hold at BPI is, is rather simple, that, that favorable policy for coin businesses will lead to a disproportionate amount of business formation in the United States, 
and an increasing share, like a plurality of hash rate and an increasing share of, of ownership of Bitcoin capital. And in that sense, already, America is positioned to disproportionately benefit from the rise of, of Bitcoin. And, and one may argue even a extract a de facto seniorage from the network in the sense that if the businesses that power people to use Bitcoin are, are domiciled here and paying taxes to the United States, we see already very clearly how favorable policy position America strategically. You know, in the case, for example, Bitcoin, say, monetizes to, you know, something like that of, of gold. But recently, on the other hand, we've also seen a lot of bad policy for, for Bitcoin. And I think we're already starting to see the beginnings of the negative consequences that that follow from that. In particular, I think recent events have brought to the forefront of the discussion the politicization of the legacy financial system and the politicization of access to banking. And Brian, I know this is something that you've dealt with firsthand. And so I want to ask, you know, Brian, Nick, and, and Tom, really two, two questions. You know, one, what are some bad policies or a bad policy with regard to Bitcoin that you're concerned about and and why does it concern you? And I'll start with with you, Brian, and we'll we'll go down the list and then and then toss it to, to Alex for a, a human rights conversation. Yeah, thank you for the question. There, there are a few that are happening simultaneously in, in Washington. One is the administration's interest in limiting Bitcoin miners' ability to use electricity to mine Bitcoin for you know climate and energy reasons. Another there, there's and there's a mandatory disclosure bill in the Senate along the same lines. And then we've seen a bill introduced by Senator Warren and Senator Marshall about KYC AML. You know, it, it sort of operating on the assumption that. Bitcoin is used mostly for an illicit finance, also a, a bad bill. And then there's the the financial regulators and banking regulators sort of attacks on the industry. And, and all three of them have one thing in common, and that is that these policy proposals actually would accomplish the opposite of their purported goals. So on the first one, on the climate and energy use note, so if you were to kick Bitcoin mining out of the United States, it doesn't stop happening. It would just go to hostile jurisdictions with much dirtier energy grids. So if you care about Bitcoin mining and its impact on the environment, you should want to foster the sorts of developments that have been happening in the private market, such as Bitcoin miners moving to West Texas and other rural parts of the country that have a lot of wind and a lot of sun and when wind and solar energy is not being consumed, but it will be consumed by Bitcoin miners, and that's what's happening. So they are actually diversifying the energy grid, making it more renewable, providing a market for, for renewables. Um, so if, if you care about the environment, you should want it to be developed more in the United States. But the policy proposals that we're seeing would try to kick it out of the United States. And so that would actually be bad for the environment. If you care about illicit finance, 
you should want more Americans capturing the value of Bitcoin because more Americans are interacting with AML KYC systems. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take the Justice Department's word for it because they've done reports on this where the, the real jurisdictional arbitrage exploited by bad actors is when is when Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies are used in jurisdictions with loose laws where it's easy to exploit them. So if you care about the illicit finance aspect and cracking down, as the Justice Department has become very good at, then you should want more Americans who are interacting with, still interacting with, with traditional systems to be capturing the value of Bitcoin. If you care about America's financial leadership in terms of financial instruments and banking and financial services overall, we've been the world leader really since the Industrial Revolution. And that has been a huge source of America's power and influence in the world. So you should want the next generation of financial innovation to be happening in the United States. We see Europe welcoming it. We see Australia, we see Singapore, we see other countries welcoming it. And that's for good reason, because they want these innovations to be developed in their country so that their country can reap the benefits. So on all of these policy proposals that we're seeing coming out of Washington in these three different sectors, I, I think they're actually, if, if enacted, they would accomplish the opposite of their purported goals. So we have to turn them on their head. We have to get these stories out. We have to make sure the policymakers understand that this is going to continue. Bitcoin is here to stay. It is a powerful and scarce resource that people around the world want a part of. And the United States should get the benefit of that. And so they shouldn't be scared of it. They should really embrace it. Yeah, I think as Brian and David both mentioned, you know, in the United States, we want the innovation. We want the jobs. We want the benefits of Bitcoin. And it's being attacked on multiple fronts. In terms of financial stability, that's a big one now. But, you know, Bitcoin doesn't seem to be the main problem there. In terms of environment, you know, Brian just mentioned a lot of the problems with that. I think one of the false assumptions in the environmental discussion is that there's no value to to Bitcoin. You know, a lot of people that are against it, it's just because they assume that it it's not valuable at all and something that we don't need. And so going back to the storytelling, you know, convincing them that there's something valuable to this, I think is important. But also in terms of consumer protection, you know, that's an area that it is under attack. And as like was asked about Natalie earlier in terms of the, the politics of this, this should be something that's attractive to both parties, you know, especially the left consumer protection is something that's very important, but they're convinced a lot of a lot of people are convinced that this is a threat rather than a benefit to consumers. And so showing them those uh, examples and telling the stories about people that are benefiting from this, I think is, I think is really important there. And hopefully an area that we, you know, we've seen some bipartisan bills proposed previously and I hope that that's something that we can have more of that won't be threatened by partisanship. I mean, the I don't know if you guys did this intentionally, but the timing of this conference is fantastic because it's just before the summer legislative session. And at the end of next year, we'll be getting into presidential stuff where the, it's going to be just much more partisan. So we've got this great window where we can still have some bipartisan bills. And if we can convince people that Bitcoin is good for consumers and tell the stories of how it's going to benefit people, then, then yeah, I think we have a, a good chance to try to protect it this summer, you know, if we can get some policies passed in Congress. I'll just keep it pretty short on two concerns I have. I just want to start kind of small and direct and then go broad. 
So agreeing with everything Brian and Thomas have said here, but another concern, I mean, is just that the the infrastructure act has still it's still looming in the background that's something that there was a great show of opposition to that as it was first coming up and still managed to make its way into law the irs pushed it back a little bit and there have been a number of bills that have been introduced to fix it but we're still in this kind of gray area where it's were kind of teased almost by the fact that there are solutions on the table and it can put you into a sense of complacency. But I really worry that that still needs to be addressed and still needs to be talked about more because the broker provisions are such a fundamental assault on Bitcoin and the larger cryptocurrency community. Now, stepping back into kind of a a broader position, though, I want to say that I'm also concerned about, I'm sure everyone in this space has seen the concerns about another iteration of choke point taking place. And one thing that kind of was a, it was a bit of a failure in my eyes um, out of the original choke point was that bills, there were many bills introduced to solve it, but all of them took a fine stance on creating a carve out for payday lenders, creating a carve-out for the cannabis industry, creating a carve-out for gun shops. And those are good because those were some of the folks that were suffering the most. But as we're seeing now, a new crop has been affected by this. And really the source of it is this huge discretion that regulators are afforded to regulate the reputation of financial institutions. And I think that's something that this should be a firm example, needs to be reined in to protect Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies writ large, the cannabis industry, gun shops, payday lenders, and the like. We shouldn't have such a broad authority that can affect everyone and really just depends on the either the political sways or even just the mood of the regulators. So something as fine as the amendments in the infrastructure bill to as large as the very authority regulators have. I think we have a a lot on our plate, a lot that needs to be focused on. And that's why a summit like this is so important to get these conversations started and out there with the people who are making the decisions. Yeah. And and a follow up I'd have there as well is this this sort of notion at the ethos of, you know, classical liberalism, which is, you know, assuming the tyrant. Like, for example, someone in the audience may have heard the the industries that you listed and say, well, I don't care about the cannabis industry or I don't care about, you know, the payday lending industry and I don't care about about. Bitcoin. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, the questions that you're raising here are are not partisan so much as of, of fundamental political economy. And it's easy to imagine, you know, if the shoe were on the other foot, where a, you know, a Republican or a right wing government weaponized the financial system to go after abortion access or, or other causes that have been, you know, politicized and matter a lot to those those on the left. So I, I do want to kind of, you know, round out that that comment by by noting that the phenomena you're describing 
the the particular industries being affected by the politicization of finance are almost inconsequential in comparison to the the broader violation of of principle that that occurs there. But I, I really appreciate the three of y'all's comments on policy risks to Bitcoin. And now that we've got Alex on stage, you know, one of the other, like I mentioned, stories that we want to tell at this summit is is the story of Bitcoin being an invaluable tool for the promotion and protection of, of human rights. But, you know, Alex has spent years now seeing firsthand, collecting the stories of and, and elevating the voices of people who are, are relying on Bitcoin not for speculation, but out of necessity. People living under authoritarian regimes where, where more than half the world lives, people living under conditions of double or triple digit inflation where, you know, anywhere between one and two billion people live who are using Bitcoin to survive. Alex, my, my question for you is that when we talk about Bitcoin promoting human rights, so many of those rights that we talk about, like the freedom to transact, free speech, freedom of, of communication, assembly, that Bitcoin sort of private property, that, that Bitcoin sort of technologically enshrines, you know, in some senses, these are, are, are not only human rights, but are core components of the, the sort of American thesis. These are, these are core components of what we may call U.S. values. And so I, I'm curious to hear you, you answer the question, Alex, what lessons in terms of the ways in which Bitcoin protects and enshrines core human rights and civil liberties have you seen abroad that you think American policymakers should take, should take note of? Where are there examples in your work where an American policymaker can see the value of exporting these American principles through code. Sure. And thank you for having me here. I'm excited about the event. I, it couldn't come at a timelier moment in, in the industry, uh, in its history. I, I think it depends on how sincere we want to take the U.S. government. Like if the U.S. government's sincere about democracy promotion, and obviously, it, it has not been sincere historically. Obviously, democracy promotion has been used repeatedly to accomplish other aims, other geopolitical aims. So if we're sincere about promoting democracy, meaning, you know, rule by the people and not rule by the few, and if we're sincere about promoting property rights and free speech and open capital markets abroad, then promoting Bitcoin is the right thing to do. If we're not sincere about it, if we have other aims, then maybe Bitcoin's not the right tool for that. If we want to continue to control other countries and exploit them, and if we want to continue to be kind of like two-faced, then Bitcoin's not going to be a good tool for that. But, if, but, but the, what I believe, though, is that there's so many people working in the U.S. government who are sincere, especially in the State Department, who work abroad. They didn't sign up for their job to exploit people. They, they signed up for their job to promote freedom and, and to stand for the values that America was founded on, not the ones that it often reflects around the world. And I think for those people, they're starting to figure this out. So there's a lot of people at state who are quite interested in using Bitcoin. And I think you're going to see more and more of this. Grant makers abroad are going to realize that this is the single best tool for delivering aid to a difficult political environment, a full stop. Everything else is subsidiary to that. You don't have to believe in it or the ideology behind it or whatever. 
You don't have to agree with people who use it. But it's obviously the single best way to get value from A to B across all kinds of borders and without rent-seeking intermediaries who, who dramatically reduce the amount of value that gets from A to B. So I think you're seeing some interest there, some excitement among the genuine people who work in the government. I also think that a lot of civil society groups are starting to activate and get excited. I mean, the amount of inbound I get every week from groups in Egypt and Indonesia, all over the world who are le learning how to incorporate Bitcoin into their operations is, is at an all-time high from what I'm seeing. People are running into all kinds of banking issues. We have Operation Choke Point 2.0 in the United States, but there's far worse attacks happening in other countries. So, you know, entire human rights movements have been debanked right across vast swaths of the world. So they're very interested in an unstoppable bank account that they can control on their phone and that their government can't take from them. So I think for people who are genuine in the U.S. government who really do want to promote our founding values abroad, which I think is a noble mission in a cooperative way as opposed to, you know, unequal exchange or some sort of, you know, exploitative way, then I think Bitcoin is a really great tool for that. And I'm excited to, to talk more and meet, meet policymakers who, who are sincere about spreading values like free speech and property rights abroad. Because honestly, you know, to, if we're just going to be honest, Bitcoin has done a lot more in this regard than many, many very, very large, expensive U.S. government you know, programs abroad. I mean, Cuba is a great example. Bitcoin's done a lot more to promote free speech and rights in Cuba than any sort of U.S. government program ever has. Thanks for the, the comments there, Alex. I've got one last question for you, and then I'm going to turn it to Grant to close us out. But, you know, like we mentioned earlier on this call, one of the things that makes this Bitcoin conference different from many others is that our audience will be primarily composed of people who we may call Bitcoin curious or, or even Bitcoin skeptical. It's it's not like a, a conference of, of Bitcoin enthusiasts coming to hear the the reasons that they all like Bitcoin. Instead, you know, almost everyone in the audience at our event are going to be people whose you know, knowledge of Bitcoin will likely predominantly come from, you know, the headlines that they've read in mainstream media outlets. And I wanted to ask you, Alex, to, to share some of your lessons learned and perspectives on bringing Bitcoin education and content to a distinctly non-Bitcoin audience, right? Like at the, the Oslo Freedom Forum, for years, you guys have been gathering leaders and, and fighters for, for democracy and human rights together. And in the last few conferences, you've done a really great job of incorporating coin education and Bitcoin content you know, into your events programming. So I'd love to hear from you before we close it out some of the, the lessons that you've learned and, and thoughts that you have on taking on a similar task to what we're doing, bringing, bringing Bitcoin education to people who, who this may be their first touch point to a serious conversation about the network. Yeah, well, Bitcoin's a voluntary phenomenon. We all know that. You can't impose on, on, on folks. So what we try to do is have, especially this year, we'll have our conference June 13 to 15 in Norway, and we'll have a three-day festival highlighting freedom movements around the world. 
and we'll have a specific track on the 15th of June dedicated to financial freedom. And this will run all day in a particular venue that's sort of opt-in. Like if you want to go, you go. If you don't need to go, you don't. I think there's still a lot of people in the broader philanthropic space, freedom space, human rights space that, that just don't get it yet. And that's fine. They can, they can, you know, they can get it when they want to get it. They'll, they'll eventually see, see why when something happens to them, like what happened to Paul Krugman the other day. Like something will happen that will make them change their mind. But until then, folks from dictatorships in the global south are, they don't need any encouragement or explanation. They intuitively grasp why this is important. So we'll have a track of extremely diverse folks from more than 20 countries who are building Bitcoin communities and Bitcoin solutions. And they're going to come show us what's happening around the world. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. And the policymakers and philanthropists that are curious will come and they'll see this. And they'll see that a lot of this innovation is happening outside of the United States, which, which I think is good. I think I'd like to see the U.S. be, as an American, I'd like to see the U.S. be like very pro-Bitcoin. I, I hope that's the case. I, I know we have a long way to go. <laughs> like right now is not, not the greatest moment, not the shining moment here for the U.S. government. I, I think that they don't holistically get it yet. I mean, just the idea that they're selling lots of Bitcoin for money that they can print makes no sense to me. Like, I, I, that's going to be a major, major geopolitical blunder that we're going to look back on in 10 years and be like, I can't believe they did that. But you know what? More, more Bitcoin for the rest of us. And I think it's fine if they don't get it for a while. The important thing is that freedom movements around the world grasp it. And that's kind of what we're working on is the international aspect of this. So looking forward to sharing more when I see you all, a lot of you in Washington later this month. And thanks again for the platform, David, Grant, and team. Can't wait to see you guys soon. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Grant, do you want to close this out? Yeah, thank you. Thank you to everybody who spoke. Just want to finish with, with a few a few comments about this event, why we're doing it, uh, what we're really doing here at BPI. So on this call, right, obviously the uniting force here is you know, everybody on this call thinks Bitcoin is good and that the benefits outweigh the risks and that there's value in sharing that with folks who might not necessarily agree with that now or fully understand the implications of this technology. That said, you know, this group has, you know, comes from many different backgrounds, both, you know, politically, geographically and of their background. And we're, we're hoping to do that same thing with this event, right? This is not a partisan event. This event is really for everyone in DC. And so we think this can be the beginning of very serious inroads for policymakers, you know, to take Bitcoin seriously as a policy issue. But, you know, when I look at BPI and when I look at a lot of the other stuff that's happening around Bitcoin advocacy in the industry, I, I see a lot of, I see a lot of noise. And, you know, when we put together this conference and started ideating this conference a few months back, we, we really wanted to, to be different. Right. And, and I, I think you see that in a, a few different ways. One, in terms of our audience, right. We're not just you know, talking in a circle. We're not just talking to the echo chamber. I think too, uh, it's very important to us that like we show our proof of work and that what we're doing is actually meaningful and can actually create change. You know, you're going to see a lot of things on social media of, you know, people taking a, a meeting here and there or, you know, talking to a person and quote unquote orange pilling them. Let me tell you, you know, as somebody who's taken almost 200 meetings with congressional offices in the past 12 months, getting the meeting isn't the hard part, right? Go, going to talk to a Republican staffer, you know, intern or like legislative aide who already agrees with you, 
that that's not that hard. You can do that. There are plenty of people who like Bitcoin. It might not be the majority of people, but they, they exist. They're out there. What is difficult is getting through to the folks who aren't already on your side, making inroads with people who might have a vested interest in integrating with you if you know, they knew what the angle was. It's hard to get in those rooms. It's hard to get a few hundred people in DC to take time out of their day in session, right? This is during the congressional session, right? There are gonna be hearings, there are gonna be votes. We're gonna have, you know, a few hundred people who have decided that, you know, this is worth their time to come to this event. We're, we're not out here just like LARPing. And it's very important to us that our work actually has, has value and actually has meaning in that, you know, if we're gonna take all this time and, and rely on, you know, donations from folks like you, that we actually make good on, on, on the money that you're kind of generously giving us and that folks in the industry are, are generously, you know, doing to support our work. I mean, I, I think I speak for everybody here on this call, you know, in similar positions in that, like, we, we really are, you know, trying to do our best to do our small part, to advocate for this industry and to do it right. And that means that, you know, sometimes you forego the social media picture. Sometimes you forego, you know, the, the biggest wins because they actually took place in a backdoor conversation. At the end of the day, I, all this is to say, we're, we're trying to do this the right way. And we appreciate everybody's support. I mean, you all taking the time to join this conversation means the world. If you're interested in coming to this event, you know, we've got sitting senators, house reps speaking at this event. We've got dozens of congressional offices, you know, represented. We got folks from the industry side. We've got think tanks. We got lobbying organizations. We've got folks from some of the largest super PACs and, and most powerful organizations in DC who are coming to this event to talk about Bitcoin specifically. This event is, is, is supposed to be pure signal and really, you know, again, be our small part of driving this movement forward. So if you're interested in attending, you know, you can request an invitation. You know, there's some pinned tweets up top. We're accepting a small number of Bitcoin plebs to be at this event. We will be live streaming this through Bitcoin Magazine. So even if you can't attend in person, you can see what we're doing, right? It's very important to us, again, as a, as a public charity, that we are like responsive to you know, the, the people who are supporting our work. So you get to see everything that we've been putting together, you know, all of our white papers, all of our stuff, it's public. And uh, this event will be public so that you all can, can tune in. So thank you to everybody. Really appreciate this. Thank you to Bitcoin Magazine for hosting this conversation. Thank you for everybody who spoke. Does anybody have any kind of final words, anything that they want to say before we wrap up? Hey, I might just jump in. It is super important to have the top-down approach in DC through the efforts that you're doing. I recognize some of the, the speakers here, just at least some of the, the places they're from that, that are that did that do that job very well. And at some point I, I think it becomes important to also discuss just kind of on a grass grassroots level what individual Bitcoiners can do to help support Bitcoin politically, whether that's on a, lo yep. a local local level or even to help support the efforts of organizations like yours. So, you know, I, it's too much to get into as we're kind of closing things out today. Maybe we'll, we'll set up another space to talk through some of the things that such a central committee process where it doesn't matter what party you're in, just getting more Bitcoiners involved with, you know, the, the local parties in terms of bylaws and choosing candidates and endorsing candidates and supporting them in the field. That's a very powerful factor, or it can be, in terms of helping influence the process along. So, you know, maybe someday we'll, we'll get some time for that. But, you know, in the meantime, it's great work that you guys are doing and really appreciate it. Grant, are you there? Yeah, can you, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Sorry. All I was saying is if you're a Bitcoiner, you know, there are plenty of things that you can do. But one thing I'd like to stress is what not to do. Don't don't listen to, you know, policy advocates who are talking about potential legislation and outcomes that they don't fully understand. You know, there was a, 
you know, debacle recently with the Uniform Commercial Code. A lot of people, you know, came out saying that this bill was pro central bank digital currency, that Bitcoin not being defined as money was really bad, that the, you know, this code did a bunch of things that it actually didn't have the power to do. And, uh, you know, a lot of Bitcoiners were swayed by some voices who were not legal experts, who didn't fully understand, you know, how this legislation worked. And, you know, Nick on this call actually put out a piece you know, pushing back against some of the narratives that, uh, you know, were being perpetuated around this issue. But, you know, one thing that we saw was, you know, people actually ended up, you know, acting against their own self-interest and against Bitcoin self-interest because they didn't understand the policy that they were advocating for or against. And so I would just encourage you, you know, the, the folks are Brian, Nick, Tom, these guys have been around the block. And they're, they're well-respected and their work is extremely well-respected by, by the right people. So, you know, just, just be careful out there, right? If you're going to make a, a firestorm about an issue, you know, make sure that that issue is actually aligned with what's best for you as a Bitcoin user, what's best for Bitcoin in the U.S. Because it's very easy to, to get all riled up about an issue, but it's a lot harder to make meaningful legislative change that is actually good for this technology. I'll get the soapbox there, but you know, throw it to you, David. Yeah, I guess just a few quick things. One, to elaborate on your point, I think for a, a grassroots movement, you know, at the sort of essence of your, your question, the notion of kind of knowing when to strike is really important. And I think a common story in grassroots movements is, is political fatigue, where people sort of get mobilized and encouraged to try to use their collective voice at a time where it might just not matter at that point. And when that happens over and over again, you know, when the, the metaphorical fire alarm gets pulled and there, there's no smoke and there's no fire, people lose their, their political efficacy, their, their sense of, of, of value, their belief that they can make a difference. And so the reality is that, that grassroots movements can be highly effective in the right ways and, and at the right times. But, you know, your question about how, you know, sort of people who are interested in this can, can help, just a quick list of, of things. I think supporting the work of organizations like the ones that have been represented on this stage financially, especially if, if Bitcoin has been good to you, is a pretty direct way. Volunteering. You know, we've had people, one of the coolest things that's happened since we started BPI, you know, a little over a year, around a year and a half ago, uh, is the, the number of people who email me asking if they can translate our work into a different language and kind of retool it and modify it to use in advocacy efforts in their own countries. And that, that's incredibly powerful. It's a real multiplier on the audience that our, our messages reach. So... You know, as just kind of a random example, if you if you speak a foreign language well and can translate well, you know, translating articles like the ones that that Nick or Thomas have written or the ones that we've put out at BPI is a great way to to volunteer. And so I think, you know, second is is broadly looking for opportunities to to volunteer with organizations or, or efforts that you align with. And then finally, I think, you know, being being organized and having channels and mechanisms for 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 which when the event arises that that loud grassroots support can really make a difference. It's it's poised to be 
as loud as possible and heard as widely as possible. And so I think in, in essence, donating, volunteering and, and organizing are, are all three great options for someone who, who is sort of just a, an onlooker to all of this and, and wants to get involved. So with that, we, we can close this out. Brian, Nick, Thomas, if you've got any last words, you know, speak now, forever hold your peace. Otherwise, I'll throw it to Chris from Bitcoin Mag to take us home. See everybody at the conference in April and Bitcoin Miami in May. Come say hello if you've been on this spaces and find it useful. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Chris, want to close this out? Yeah, no, I'm really looking forward to helping with this conference in April with you guys. Definitely looking forward to the live stream part of it. And join us in Coin Miami in Coin 2023, May 18th to the 20th. Like we mentioned at the beginning of the space, you can support what these guys are doing at the Bitcoin Policy Institute by using the code Bitcoin Policy at checkout for your tickets down to Bitcoin 2023. Part of the proceeds of that go to help support them and their work. And we will definitely have talks with a lot of the Bitcoin Policy Fellows, as well as Grant and David should be moderating a few panels talking about all those issues. So really looking forward to it. And we're just 44 days out from the conference. So get your tickets today. Prices do go up on Friday. With that, we're going to close it out. So everyone, thanks so much and have a good one. Talk to you later. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. As 2023 begins, the broke issue stares head on into the looming realities of a broken economy, a more broke central bank, and considers how Bitcoiners can share their knowledge, their projects, and their mentalities to remain strong economic nodes throughout the winter. As a global Bitcoin news medium with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization, Bitcoin Magazine is for all Bitcoiners, the curious, convicted, and the maximalists. Inside Bitcoin Magazine, you will find exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, and powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Each issue will be shipped safely in a secure box mailer to protect the integrity of each copy. Print magazines, not money. Buy Bitcoin Magazine.